The scripture reading this morning is Matthew 26, verses 1 through 16. If you'd like to follow in your Bibles or watch the screen, I will begin in Matthew 26, verses 1 through 16. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come today on the cusp of a very important text in the Gospel of Matthew. And we... We simply want you to use these chapters, 26, 27, and 28, to remind us of the centrality of the cross of your Son. We, We thank you that this passion of your Son has become our lifeblood. It's, it's everything to us. It's, it's the ground of our forgiveness. It's, the basis of our hope, it's the center of everything we believe. It, it took an emblem of Roman tyranny, the cross, and made it a symbol of great hope. It's, it's where we, we find our forgiveness and our identity. These chapters have everything in them that we hold dear. And so I pray today that you would speak, Lord, through your word. I, I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would literally literally open the eyes of some today, whether they're in this facility, whether in worship too, or whether they hear this message online, that God, you would do a spiritual conquering work today. 
and that we would see and savor the beauty of what your son is truly worth. And so help us, Lord. I, I say to you today, Father, I am yours. I belong to you. I'm, I'm ready to do your will. I will try to exegete this text. I'll do this because I love you and I will trust you for the results. And so we pray that you would now be our teacher. We pray through your sacred word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A two-minute warning, a bell lap, a ten-second countdown, the eleventh hour, and the finale are all ways to describe the end of an event, whether it's a basketball game, a musical, the final leg in a marathon. And, And all of those little statements capture the reality of that when the end is in sight, the intensity of the moment increases. In fact, everything that's happened up until that moment really doesn't matter so much because it all comes down to the final shot, the final lap, or that final performance. In fact, it is the last performance that people remember the most. And today we begin the last performance of the Gospel of Matthew because everything he's written in the last 25 chapters will now come to focus focus in these three We've reached the bell lap in our journey as we've studied this book, and for the next 12 weeks we're going to take some time to really examine in an in-depth way what the passion of Jesus Christ is all about. I'm thrilled to be able to be here in this book and to spend 12 weeks talking about the crucifixion of Christ, all the events leading up to it, seeing Judas and, and Pilate and learning about Caiaphas and what was happening behind the scenes and Next week we'll look at what the Passover meal was all about. Ultimately, the story that Matthew has wanted to tell in this gospel now comes into clear relief in chapters 26, 27, and 28. And this, friends, is the center of the gospel, the heart of the Christian faith, and and it is really the ground of all hope. And we're going to talk about that for the next number of weeks. So we've been studying this book of Matthew for over 20 months now. And I don't assume that you remember the purpose of why Matthew has written this book. So let me remind you what his purpose is. The theme of this book, this gospel, is to show that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah sent to bring the kingdom of God to the entire world. That's why he's written. That's why he begins the book the way he does, with the genealogy of all things. I mean, a boring way to begin a book. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and and -and so-and-so begat so-and-so. And and he begins to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the one. He's he's the one that the Scriptures had long promised. And beginning with that genealogy, and then talking about his birth, and then his baptism, and his, his induction into ministry, he then began to go around the countryside teaching the people. And remember the Sermon on the Mount, that series we did called Get Real, where Jesus kind of got in our face and said, look, get real, get serious about who I am and who, who, who God called us to be he came to fulfill the law and the prophets not to break them or annul them and then we saw him heal people and as he healed them outcasts of society were attracted to him and as they were attracted to him the religious leaders were repulsed by him and through it all the disciples continue to misunderstand his mission the religious leaders see him as a threat and begin to plot to kill him And then Jesus talks about the end of the age, and that's where we've left our study 
and where we are right now in this slice between the end of the age discussion and now his coming passion. And what will happen from this point forward is that everything will grow in intensity and it will all culminate in this major conflict in Jerusalem where Judas will betray him, the religious leaders will find a way to bring him to Pilate for prosecution, he'll be condemned, he'll be crucified, he'll be buried, God will gloriously raise him from the dead, he will then appear to his disciples and the whole book ends this way. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This book is a book of conquering Christ. A king who has come. A Messiah whose mission is to redeem his people. So in this series, then, we're going to look deeply and personally at the most important moment in human history and in the course of God's redemptive plan. This is the signature moment. If you were to take all the other Gospels and combine them, a third of all of that they have written occurs is about, rather, these two or three days. A third of all the gospel content is just about what happens during these few days. And the reason is simple, because what happens in these days is the sum total of what they wanted to write about in the first place. So, I want to frame, if you will, the passion of Jesus so you understand what we're going to be looking at. And we begin in verse 1. There's four things I want you to see here. First, it says, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, He said to His disciples... So what's happening here is there's a transition, and namely that Jesus now is transitioning from his teaching ministry to his suffering ministry. He's laid out for the disciples the ethic of the kingdom. He's told them about the future. And now, after this Olivet Discourse, his final collection of teachings, he's going to demonstrate how he will live out his message. Everything in his life has been for this moment. This is the reason why he's come. This is the purpose of Matthew's gospel. To not only hear his teaching, but to show them a Messiah who suffers and dies, and in dying conquers. Secondly, these events happen during the week of Passover. Verse 2, it says, For you know that after two days the Passover is coming. So all of this is set up in the Passover, and I don't want to assume that all of you know what the Passover is. Next week we'll look at this in much more depth in its connection to the Lord's table. Let me just give you a brief overview. Passover was the spiritual highlight in terms of festivities for the Jewish people because it symbolized their amazing deliverance where God pulled them out of slavery in Egypt and they became his own people. Egypt was a superpower, and Israel were slaves, and God conquered not only the nation of Egypt, but also their idea of their gods. And each of these plagues that God sends them, ten of them in all, are meant to confront the um, Egyptian hubris where they think they're ruling the world and they can do whatever they want. And God says, through Aaron and through Moses, let my people go. And when Pharaoh refuses, God then sends them these ten plagues. The final plague, of course, is the killing of every firstborn. The name Passover comes from the way that God delivered his people. They took a lamb, they killed it, roasted it, and took its blood, and then put its blood on the doorposts of their house. 
And then when the angel of death came over um, the, the nation of Egypt, every firstborn child died except for those families who had the blood sprinkled over the doorpost. And in this way, this sacrificial lamb and blood and deliverance and slavery and redemption all converge in this beautiful symbol. It's no wonder that when John sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is just divine beauty that this Christ comes into the city of Jerusalem during the city, during the celebration of Passover and becomes the ultimate sacrificial lamb. And this theme, this sacrifice, this blood, this lamb being delivered from slavery will become the major theme in the New Testament when we talk about salvation. Third, Jesus not only here is transforming from his ministry of teaching to suffering that only comes during the time of Passover. He not only predicts his crucifixion, this is the third thing, but it, he sees the crucifixion as his mission. Look at verse 2. It says, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So it's, he's not just talking about it as if it's going to happen, although he knows that it will. He's talking about it in terms of his mission. And what's going to happen is during these next number of days and during 12 weeks as we look at this, you're going to see the divine drama of God unfold as unwitting participants like the chief priests and the rulers and Judas combine with and collude with the demonic activity that's happening in the city of Jerusalem to try and kill the Son of God. And unknowingly, the devil and people on earth collude to both kill the Son and accomplish God's redemptive plan. And it is an amazing convergence as the cross now becomes the means by which God gives the great opportunity for people to be forgiven. By taking the sin of people and pouring it out on His Son. And through an act of incredible injustice, the murder of the Son of God, God births and accomplishes the greatest act of justice ever seen. Finally, we see the antagonists in the story are religious rulers. This is the fourth thing to notice in the framing of the passion of Jesus. Verse 3, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So what happens here is the chief priests and the elders are scared. Jesus' ministry has challenged their spiritual and political authority, and therefore they have a secret meeting at Caiaphas' house in order to determine how they could kill him. We have to get rid of this guy. He's creating an uproar within the city. His popularity is growing, and they sense the seeds of revolution. And not unlike what we've witnessed in the last week and a half. If you could take out a couple leaders, you might be able to squelch it. But you've got to take them out carefully and quietly, lest they become a martyr. And so it's dicey. It's difficult. Because Rome is on high alert. Thousands of pilgrims are streaming into the city of Jerusalem. Jesus presents a political, social, and religious threat to their power. And they are scared that if a revolution happens, Rome will come in and cleanse the entire city of Jerusalem, end their worship at the Temple Mount, and the effect will be a disastrous event in the nation's history. And so therefore, they view they have to protect the nation from Jesus. So ironic. In fact, John chapter 11 gives us an insight. 
It says this, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better... For you, that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Notice the prophetic words that he says. And then John adds this comment. Not, he did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So what you've got to understand is that while all these participants are all doing their thing, there is this divine drama that is unfolding. So the chief priests are afraid at many levels. They have no idea that their diabolical plans are both Satan's design and also God's purposes. They have to get rid of Jesus. They have to find a way to arrest him quietly. They have to find a way to kill him, lest somehow a revolt happens. And what is taking place is that the city of Jerusalem is teeming with this religious and spiritual tension. And these are days that are loaded with hatred and betrayal and intrigue, injustice and abuse. They are also at the same time filled with sovereignty, symbolism and redemption. This is the convergence of God's plan. Now within that framework of the passion of Jesus, to kind of set the context for it, Matthew gives us at the beginning of this section of scripture two responses to the worth of Jesus. The first is Mary. And it involves perfume. And the second is Judas. And it involves 30 pieces of silver. I want you to see this. And and I want you to be thinking about the concept of spiritual eyesight. I want you to ask yourself this question. What do you see when you read this story? What do you you see? Not just with your eyes, but what do you see with the, the spiritual discerning heart? What do you see in this passage? In verse 6 to 13, we see that Mary loved Jesus with extravagance. Look at verse 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, um, if you were to go over to John chapter 12, you'd find that John gives us some additional detail. This was the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Simon was probably their father. He may have been cured by Jesus or by some other means of leprosy. And so Jesus is there um, in the, the city of Bethany. And the effect is that they're having a meal together. And Matthew says, verse 7, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. Now this woman, according to John, was Mary. And this alabaster flask was a stone jar that had very expensive ointment in it. Likely, John tells us, about 300 denarii, which is about a year's salary. And in the middle of this particular gathering... Mary, according to Matthew's account, poured this um, ointment or this perfume on his head as he reclined at the table. So he's there, reclining, legs are out this way, the table's here, Mary comes behind him and takes this ointment, very expensive, and the room just fills with the aroma as Mary pours over him this, this ointment, and it flows over his head and shoulders. And then in John chapter 12, it tells us that she then took the ointment and then anointed his feet and then undid her hair and began wiping his feet with her hair, which is a a symbol of humiliation and service and devotion. 
The question, though, is what do you see in this event? What, what do you see? Because the disciples see something very differently than what Matthew would want us to see. Verse 8, it says, And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? The word indignant means to be angered or outraged, such that it looks like grief. It's when, when, some, when you lose something that's expensive and you go, Oh! Oh! For instance, this last week I was traveling with my family and I was using my GPS early in the morning to find where I could go. And I, I didn't know the direction, so I was looking at it. And I set it down in the cup holder. This Blackberry set it in the cup holder. And then about two minutes later I looked over and there's this really strange red beeping thing going on on my phone. And then I realized that I hadn't just set it in the cup holder. I set it in the coffee cup, which was full of coffee. So, newsflash, um, Blackberry's like decaf coffee. <laughs> and when I pulled it out from the cup and it was dripping wet, I went, oh, and I'm mad, I'm indignant, and that's what my wife, you know, is thinking, why don't you just use a travel mug, right? So, it, it, it's, it's this indignant thing, right, where you're like, oh, and this is this is a waste, right? And this is what the disciples, they, they view the ointment of Jesus being poured over him as, as a waste. And, and they respond in a very interesting way. John 12 tells us that it was Judas who led their complaint. What they say is in verse 9. This could have been sold for a large sum of money and given to the poor. Don't you love that? Man, I hope you see yourself in that. Because here are these hard-hearted disciples who cover their lack of spiritual discernment by sounding spiritual. You know you can do that, right? You know you can miss the forest for the trees and quote a Bible verse and sound all spiritual when the reality is you have completely missed the point, but you sound like you're really knowledgeable and all you've done is baptize your spiritual deception with Bible verses. Jesus rebukes them. Verse 10, why do you trouble the woman? For she's done a beautiful thing to me. Verse 11, for you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me pouring the ointment on my body. By pouring the um, ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. And truly I say to you, when wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And so what, what Jesus says here is a couple of things. He says what she's done is, is beautiful. See, see, they see it as a waste, and he sees it as beautiful. And the difference is, what do you see? Do you see Jesus and ointment? Or do you see ointment and Jesus? That's the difference. And it's amazing how one's perspective could be completely different depending on what you see in that moment. And Jesus says, you see it as a waste, and she's done something beautiful. It's remarkable that someone could see it as a waste when it's really beautiful. It's, it's scary, frankly. Two people could see the exact same moment and go, beautiful, or what a waste. It all depends on what their eyes see. And then secondly, he rightfully prioritizes himself, even over the care of the poor. He says that you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And this is really important, because Jesus is not saying that we should neglect the poor, but he is saying that there is something even more important than taking care of the poor, which is being sure that you get the worship of Jesus right. In other words, listen, good for good's sake is worthless. Good for gospel's sake makes all the difference in the world. 
This is really important, especially in light of all the things that we're doing in terms of justice and poverty and other similar issues in our community. And, and we are doing those with all of the gusto that we can muster. But I need you to understand something, that we do those for gospel's sake, not just for good's sake. That knowing Jesus and loving Jesus and loving others are both important, but they're not equally important. And that loving and knowing who he is should lead you to do good things But you can't have good works without the gospel. Otherwise, those good works aren't really even good. As Tim Keller says, they become damnable good works. We do them because of what they say about us, not what they say about Jesus. He also says that Mary is preparing him for burial. She and the disciples are a part of a divine plan that will unfold before them. Uh, These are important days in ways that they don't even fully understand. And then finally, he says that Mary's action will be praised when the gospel is understood and proclaimed. He says, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. In other words, when you understand the full scope, the full reality of redemption, when you can see the cross from this perspective and look through the cross and to see Mary's actions then her actions make total sense. When you, when you see the reality of who Jesus is and all that he's done, then you look at this passage and you see the offering of the ointment and you go, well, that makes total sense. I mean, look, it's Jesus. I mean, what, what he's done, he's the most valuable person in, in the entire world. Do you know what he's done for me? Do you know what he's going to do for her? And when you look at her through the cross, her actions completely make sense. And friends, this is what the gospel does. It gives you lenses And you see the world completely differently. You see people who are mean differently. You see suffering differently. You see marriage and money and your job. You see kids. You see everything differently when the gospel becomes the lenses through which you see life. In other words, your relationship with Jesus changes how you view everything. It changes how you view even extravagant love. The other example is that of Judas. And rather than loving Jesus with extravagance, he betrays him with vengeance. Verse 14, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, Don't miss this. What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? I mean, just, just savor those diabolical words if you can. What will you give me if I deliver him to you? What's remarkable is that Jesus knew that this was to be the destiny of Judas. In John 17, in his prayer for his disciples, he says this to the Father, While I was with them, meaning the disciples, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So even though Jesus knows that Judas will collude with the devil in his betrayal. He still invites him to be part of his inner circle. And even Judas's treachery is a part of God's plan for the suffering of his son and for our own redemption. And it's remarkable how Judas, after apparently seeing the waste of this ointment, something trips in him. And we'll look at that more in depth in a couple weeks. And, And that causes him to then go to the chief priests who at this point have no plan about how they're going to arrest 
Jesus and Judas gives them the plan. So he gives them the plan and says, what will you give me if I, if I give him over to you? And this must have been a huge relief to them. And that one statement alone of what will you give me if I deliver him to you is terrible as it is. But then what makes it even worse is the price. The text says, and they paid him 30 pieces of silver. So think of this exchange. He comes to them and says, what will you give me if I turn him over to you? And they say, here, 30 pieces of silver. And Judas says, okay. And in this quick exchange between the chief priests and Judas, the betrayal of the Son of God happens, verse 16, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. This, this 30 pieces of silver has significance. In Exodus chapter 21 and verse 32, um, it says, If an ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. So don't miss this. What is 30 shekels of silver? It's the cost of a dead slave. So again, here's someone in the inner circle who's ticked off because of the expensive ointment that's been poured out over Jesus Something trips in his mind. He goes to the chief priest. What will you give me if I give him over to you? And they're like 30 pieces of silver. And Judas sells out the Son of God for the price of a dead slave. I remember when this, this, the value of 30 pieces of silver or the lack thereof just struck me so deeply. About 10 years ago, I was able to visit one of the largest collections of ancient scriptures in North America. It was the private collection of the Van Campen family. Um, They owned the Van Campen Merit Company, sold it to Xerox in 1984, and used some of uh, their God-given wealth to collect scriptures from all over the world. And as God would have it, they collected these and stored them in Grand Haven, Michigan. And so... I got to go up and their scriptorium was this vault underground, secret passageway literally underneath a tennis court, and you went underneath this secret vault, and I hope it's not there anymore because I just revealed where it is, but anyways. um, uh, In fact, the collection isn't there anymore. It's actually in um, the Holy Land Experience in Orlando, Florida. That's where it's now housed. And so they were giving private tours, so myself with 15 other people, we go to the volleyball court, it looks like we're going in the bathroom. Next thing we know, we're down an elevator, and we're in this huge labyrinth of, of scholars and, and archaeologists. I mean, it was amazing. It was like, it was like a movie. And uh, in, in the collection was the entire uh, Nestle Allen Greek text that they used to tr- some translate the New Testament. One Bible, for instance, was called the Martyr's Bible. I believe it was from the time of the English Reformation, where if you owned a copy of God's Word, that was a capital offense, and they would kill you. And then after you were dead, they would open up your body cavity and shove the Bible inside your body cavity. Well, we were in a room, and they pulled out this Bible, and they showed it to us, and you could see on the pages of of the Scriptures, it was stained with blood. But the most memorable moment was... um, a pastor seated next to me, they asked him to stand and to cup his hands, and he went like this, and the guy took out, the tour guide took out a black pouch and poured coins into his hand, and then he said to him, do you know what you're holding? He said, no. He said, you're holding 30 pieces of Samaritan silver. And the minute he said that, the pastor went like this and pulled his hands back, almost like it was on fire, and those 30 pieces of silver flipped and 
trinkled all over top of the table, spilled all over the place. His face went ash white. He sat right down next to me and looked at me. And I said, what's the matter? He said, Mark, it's so light. So light. And that's the point. This is what Judas sells Christ for. 30 pieces of silver. Willing to betray him for the price of a dead slave. And and what we have here, friends, is the stunning contrast between the actions of Judas and Mary. Mary. Mary loved Jesus with an extravagant love. And Judas betrayed him with a self-centered vengeance. What will you give me if I hand him to you? And their actions reveal what they think Jesus is really worth. And it all relates to what do you see. So when someone takes an expensive jar of ointment and pours it over the head of Jesus, what do you see? Do you see, oh, that makes sense. He's, 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 he's worthy of that. He's, he's the son of God. He's, he's done all of this for me. He's worth, or do you see, what a waste. And that then leads me to this question. Who is, or what rather, is Jesus worth to you? The question is, what do you, what do you see? You know, the Bible talks about spiritual eyesight and looking not just with your eyes, but with the eyes of your heart. And what I want you to realize is that what you see is really, really important. Because what you see determines whether or not Jesus is really worth something to you or not. There is a cosmic spiritual battle for what you see in Jesus. I need you to understand that that, that what you see is more than just something about you. That there is a cosmic spiritual battle that is taking place. That some people could, could view Christ as valuable and others would view Him as absolutely worthless. And that's just not a physiological or just a mental issue. There's a spiritual warfare going on as to what you see when you look at Jesus. Because Satan's aim, according to 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 5, is to keep you blinded to who Jesus is. 2 Corinthians 4 says this, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So listen, Satan's strategy is to keep you blind. How does he do that? Well, he colludes with your natural sinful desires and the luring attraction of the world to keep people blind to Jesus. It's not just that he somehow convinces you that Jesus didn't exist. That may be one strategy. But more often than not, he tries to convince you that the lure of the world, the things that Satan offers you through your own flesh and through the attraction of a sin-cursed world are far more lovely than Jesus. He uses the offering of pleasure, of happiness, of power, of intelligence, of fulfillment, all of which are good things, but he offers them apart from Christ. So his strategy is not a denial that Jesus exists, but a simple denial that he is not more desirable than anything else. It is to try and convince you that Jesus is one of many good options, not the only options. It is to try and convince you that there is nothing special about him. That the devil doesn't want you to see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. 
And so the, the battle is for you to realize that all the things that the devil has offered you, all the things that are in the world, the sins, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, these are things that offer you joy and happiness and pleasure, but it is a fake joy, a false trap, and a true waste of your life. And friend, there is a spiritual battle that's going on right now for what you see, even in what you hear in terms of this very text. The Bible also tells us that conversion involves a spirit-birthed change in what you see. You see, here's what happens. Jesus said this to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 3. He said this, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean see in terms of enter into, or he walks in, oh, this is the kingdom. What he means is this, that unless one is born again, he can't even see the reality of how you get to the kingdom. You don't have the spiritual eyesight to be able to see that this Jesus becomes the Savior by whom you are forgiven. So conversion, when you are brought from death to life, is where suddenly the light bulb goes on in your eyes and you see, you see with clarity the weight of your sin. You realize how you have offended a holy God and that God is so holy beyond your wildest dreams and you are so sinful and you know there's no remedy for this in anything that you would do. And then the cross comes into purview and you realize that Christ became the atonement for your sins and you see that Christ could forgive you of your sins by you placing your trust in Him. And in seeing you believe and in believing you are converted. And this glorious moment where you see Christ is the moment where your spiritual eyesights have been changed and you are born again. You see through the eyes of faith and you behold how beautiful Christ truly is. And what's remarkable is two people could be looking at the same thing and they don't see the same thing. It's like, remember those those 3D pictures that they used to have in the mall? Or put in the newspaper and you'd stare at them and let your eyes go really buggy and then you'd see like a, like an alligator start to come out. You know, you're standing at the mall and you're like, I see the alligator. The guy next to you, like, I don't see it. Well, just stare. I'm staring. Look at it. Oh no, there's a palm tree over there in the corner. Like where? Over there in that corner. And the longer you stare, the more it comes out. And you can be looking at the exact same thing, but you don't see the same thing. And that, that is what happens in the context of even this very message that you could hear and see, but go, this is a waste. Or it could be that God by His Spirit suddenly helps you to realize that you are a person who's offended a holy God and there is no remedy apart from the person of Christ and suddenly it clicks, the light bulb goes on and I want you to know that if that happens even in this moment, that is God by His Spirit blowing upon your heart. Oh dear friend, do not resist that beautiful wooing of Christ for Him to eclipse the power of sin and who you are with the beautiful reality of who Christ is. Spiritual eyesight. What do you see? And then finally... This relates to just everyday obedience. Following Jesus in obedience and in suffering is connected to what you see in Him. So so it would be a, a tragic mistake for you to think that seeing Jesus this way is only a matter of conversion. You see, seeing Him like this makes a difference in how you live every single day. In other words, in terms of obedience, 
It means that you see that following Christ is more attractive, more lovely, and more sensible than the offering of sin. Let's be honest. Sin offers something that's initially pleasurable. It's initially, it feels to be good. It feels like something, oh yes, this will make me happy. This will make me wise. This will make me fulfilled. This will be my joy. It will fill my heart. And then you realize it is a, it's like a fishing lure and suddenly you're caught. It looked like a crawdad, but really it's got little hooks at the end and wham, you're like a fish stuck in a line. And the beauty of following Christ is that you realize that he's more attractive, more lovely, more sensible. And in terms of suffering, it means that you see Christ as more worthy than anything, including what you would lose. So that Christ becomes more worthy than any hardship. So for those of you who are on the crusp of hardship, realize that you may lose everything, but you do not lose the thing that is most valuable, which is Christ. And when you learn to cling to him, you will find sweet grace that when Jesus strips you of all that you have and all you have is Christ, you have more than enough. The writer of Hebrews is very helpful in this seeing paradigm. Listen to what he says. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy, notice, the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. You see, moms and dads, those of you who have any influence on teenagers or young people, this is what we have to get into the hearts and lives of our kids. We have to show them that Jesus is of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. We have to show them that there's nothing greater, nothing more joyful, nothing more exciting than the reality of what it means to know Christ. And my question is, is that how you woke up this morning? Is that how you came to church today? If not, what do you think your kids are going to think about this thing called Christianity? We go to church, let's go. Can't wait to be able to sit down and eat pizza and sleep this afternoon as if that's what life really is all about. Pizza and sleep versus Christ. It gets as practical as the reality of what it means for you to treasure Christ is more lovely than anything. And then for clinging, look at what he says. By faith he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king for he endured. I love this. Oh, how I love this. As seeing him who is invisible. If you've ever walked through a hard trial, you know the beauty it is that this text is talking about that as you walk in the midst of the valley of the shadow of the death, it's as though you can actually see him. Oh, you can't see him like with your eyes, but you see him with your, you know he's there. You hear a word of scripture. You see him in the text. It's that Christ is real and alive and there and you endure as seeing him who is invisible. And what makes all the difference in the world is what do you see when you look at Christ? So what inspires a lifetime of obedience? What motivates a follower of Jesus to consistently choose the path of righteousness? What, what prompts somebody to give generously of their money? What, what woos a single man or woman to swim upstream despite the current of sexual impurity? What what causes a follower of Jesus to joyfully suffer in the name of Christ? What causes someone to get on their knees and say, Jesus, I can trust you? You know what it is? It is the exceeding eternal worth of Christ. And if you know him in all of his beauty, and if your spiritual eyes have seen him, then when you look at the story of Mary and the expensive ointment, you see what she does and you go, oh, of course. I mean, come on. It's Jesus. 
It's Jesus. Or if your heart has never been turned over to Christ and you've never experienced the reality of what it means to be forgiven of all of your sins, past, present, and future, you look at the story and you go, what, what a waste. You see, Jesus is viewed as worthy of so much or so little depending on your heart orientation toward him. So friends, it all, it all comes down to this. What is, what is Jesus worth? Well, it completely depends on what you see. And my hope and prayer would be that for those of you who know him, that, that this Sunday would elevate your heart and love for Christ. And you would say, yes, Lord, help me to continually elevate my love and my heart for you so that when hardship comes or when temptations come, I can see them and say, why would I want that when I have this? Why would I want to become a slave again when I've been set free? Why would I want to, be, why would I want to fear when I know who, who I can trust? Why would I ever want to fear my own life when I know that nothing can separate me from Him? Nothing can. And you live in this constant comparison and you always side with Christ because you know how lovely He is. But every single day you elevate the beauty of who He is so that when those things come, you can fight them off. And for those of you who's, who look at this and you're just like, What? I would, I would say to you, oh, if your eyes could be opened and you could respond in faith to Christ, that you would see the beauty of who He is. And I would exhort you, encourage you, if I could even plead with you to not resist the gentle or forceful wooing of Christ upon your heart where He opens your eyes and you see yourself and you see Him. That is not just you. There is a spiritual dynamic taking place where God by His Spirit is doing something that you cannot deny but you should respond to. So what is Jesus worth? Oh, it all depends on what you see. So Lord, I pray that you by your Holy Spirit would help us to see the beauty of who you are in this text today. Lord, I pray for those who maybe for the first time realize what's going on in their life. And they, they're beginning to see like, like blinders that are being lifted. They could, they understand their sin. They understand the cross. It's all beginning to make sense. And now they're at a decision point where they need to decide what they will do with you. And I pray, Lord, that in seeing they would believe and in believing they would be converted. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who have known Christ for many years. Some who may walk through difficult seasons in 2011. Some who may be in them today, I pray that you'd help them to endure as seeing him who is invisible and that you would meet with them today. Give them hope, give them encouragement, give them grace. And remind us, O Lord, how lovely and beautiful you are. And now before we leave, would you just take a moment and tell Christ right where you are just how lovely he is to you and why you love him? And finally, if you need someone to pray with you, if you feel like the blinders are being lifted, feel like God's calling you to conversion, 
There's going to be some folks up here at the front afterwards who'd love nothing more than to introduce you to the reality of who Christ is. You don't need them to pray with you, but if that's helpful, they're here. Or if there's others of you who just need someone to pray God's grace over you as you cling, this group of people would like love nothing more. That's why they're here, than just to pray God's grace over you. And so, oh, risen Christ, would you now do your work in its fulfillment and its in its completion by your spirit and for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, College Park. I love you. Have a great day.